0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I am in our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. And I'm here part of a effort and around kind of getting back out there um, after Susan's passing and trying to determine and find my footing in the role where we want to go forward. And how best to manifest that. And Susan very clearly and explicitly wanted me, she was saying, to thrive and make this continue the work of trying to make the world a better place. And so we've come to D.C. and reconnecting and reengaging and trying to see how best to contribute to advance the cause of social change. We are at the White House today, going to the state capitol tomorrow to do a little tour of the confederate monuments that are in the capitol and do something to educate the public around that off to Virginia Thursday for a whole day in Virginia, which is featured in the whole chapter in the book of on its centrality to what's happening. They have some of the main um, elections in the country this, this year in terms of trying to take back the state house. So trying to get back out there and, and, and re-engage and, and really connect with people who are doing the most important work to try to change our country, and that we're just really blessed and honored to have as our guest on the podcast today somebody who has been doing that for a long time and has now really taken that to very, very high levels of this country's political and social change and public policy arena. And so we're just honored that she's making time for us. And so, Charlene, do you want to introduce our repeat and now quite esteemed guest on today's podcast?
1: Yes, I'd love to. I'm really excited for today's guest. And like you said, we've had her on before, probably about, I was doing the math about exactly three years ago around this time. And I can't believe it's been that long already, but we're really excited to have her on. Our guest today is Emmy Ruiz. And like you were saying, she's kind of a big deal. She's one of those people who makes me feel so hopeful. And I could really use that right now. You know, it is a start of new year. So to get the chance to talk to somebody right now who is in a position of power in our country, who is a woman of color and as awesome as she is. Emmy Ruiz is a former campaign aide to Vice President Kamala Harris, Secretary Hillary Clinton, President Barack Obama, and Democratic Chairman Tom Perez. She is also a co-founder and former partner at New Coast Strategies, a minority-majority political firm. She currently serves as, from assistant to the president and White House director of political strategy and outreach for the Biden-Harris administration. She's a Texas native and graduated from University of Texas at San Antonio. And her Twitter bio says, lucky immigrants kid doing my best in service of others. Welcome, Emmy. It is such a pleasure. And I'm so stoked to have you back on our podcast And thanks for making the time. We know you're busy. I remember when you got your current position, when you got the new job, got into working in the White House. And I I remember saying to the team, man, it's going to get a lot harder to get Emmy to come on. So we are really glad you were able to make the time. Thanks so much.
2: Charlene, it's so wonderful to be with you. I I just, I want to thank you and Steve for that really warm and kind introduction. I'm so, so happy to be here with you today and to talk about just where we go from here uh, in many ways. And and Steve, as you know, I have been thinking of you. I have been sending you big, big hugs. And you know what a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thought of Susan and a dream for you to continue to thrive. And what is so beautiful about it is because the thing about you, Steve, is you don't thrive alone. Mm. You bring so many others with you. And I have been a beneficiary of that many, many times. And so I think that is just so beautiful. And I just, I can't wait to see um, what the future brings for you um, and for all of us. And so yeah. it's nice to be with you today.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I mean, we'll try not, as as may or may not have happened in a meeting today, we'll try not to begin with a whole bunch of tears and clean to here, but we do need to, uh, Ima, I really appreciate your, your remarks. So let's start um, in terms of reflecting on the 2020 election, in that, you know, as the world knows that we were, well, as I described it, facing a quite literal attempt to install fascism, white nationalist fascism within this country. And it did led we, we were had the fortune resolve historical election with Joe Biden winning and becoming the president. And that you were instrumental in a lot of that work. I mean, so I'm interested in what were your biggest takeaways, probably both like electorally, but also kind of in a more gestalt sense in terms of where the country was at and what they were looking for. And so what do you, what were your takeaways from 2020 and what do you think the implications of that are for 2024?
2: You know, that's a great question. I have been thinking a lot about 2020 um, over the last few weeks and also, you know, going back to different presidential cycles, 2008, 2012, 2016. And of course, the midterms have never, have not been far uh, from my thoughts, I will say a few things. One is this country exhaled joint sigh of relief, right? When President Biden and Vice President Harris were elected. I think many of us, in particular, those of us that are very leaned into the news, that are organizers that work in this, in these types of roles day in and day out. I think many of us were very, very concerned about democracy in this country. What could happen if we didn't prevail? And even if we did, Right. As you'll remember, it took a little bit of time um, for the race to be called. And even then, you know, this this new term that we use almost daily that we haven't didn't have in our vocabulary before election denier Mm -hmm. is something that has really come to be a common term. I mean, I'll start with the good things. Right. I mean, one incredible, despite a pandemic, despite being in the thick of the pandemic at that time, we saw a historic turnout yeah. um, in support of Joe Biden and a historic vice president nominee in Kamala Harris, the first black uh, woman, uh, Asian you know, ancestry as well. U.S. Senator from California, a real barrier breaker. And we saw historic turnout. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, of course, you know, there's a lot to celebrate there. That's one thing too, if you'll remember, we also kept the House and the Senate and then the Senate runoffs uh, in Georgia. I mean, who can really think of just such a consequential um, set of races that really helped us set the term for the first two years of the administration mm-hmm. and all that President Biden was able to accomplish? Right. I mean, with such a slim majority, what we saw, I think, was unprecedented, whether it is historic investment in climate, whether it is expanding broadband, you know, whether it is lowering costs through, for example, prescription drugs, the insulin cap, you know, bipartisan infrastructure passage, progress on gun safety legislation, the Protection of Marriage Act, uh, which impacts people like you, Steve and Susan and myself and and protects us. I mean, at that point, though, we could not even have imagined that it would even feel necessary to do that. Right. Yeah. Even in 2020, uh, on a very high note. And so I will say one is, again, of course, the uplifting the celebratory aspects of it. President Biden won. Vice President Harris won. It really set us on this trajectory of historic accomplishments. That being said, I think things drastically changed as to how we see campaigns I think, you know, Zoom organizing, Zoom campaigning, organizing from home, um, the role, I think, of election workers was more than ever uh, front and center. And I think that that has continued to be true through today. And so, you know, there was a lot to celebrate, but it just really was a crash course in the road ahead and and what the next few years will look like. That was really, I think, the beginning of some of those big challenges in terms of election deniers, of villainizing, of election administrators, how important some of these races are. For example, secretaries of state, attorneys general, right? I think we just have continued to be on this path where... Every day, I think um, voters across this country are learning how important our systems are and how important it is to protect them. Now, the good news is, you know, now as we're speaking today on this podcast, we've also passed surpassed the midterms. Mm -hmm. And I think the American people are continuing to move in this very, very positive direction and this very, very, I think, defensive posture of defending what is right defending the systems at work, but also acknowledging that we have quite a bit of progress to make as we move forward.
1: See, I knew you would make us feel better. <laughs> you make me feel better.
2: <laughs> well, we, you know, we're making progress. I a lot of times so we forget, you know, Steve and I we were do. Uh, catching up earlier. And the thing about the midterms is that there was this very negative sentiment out there, right? Oh, Democrats are doomed. How bad will they be for Joe Biden? Red wave. Red wave. Mm. Oh my God. What will Kevin McCarthy do with a 300 seat majority? You know, it's just, it was ridiculous. It was crazy. Under President Biden and Vice President Harris's leadership and the Democrats in Congress, I mean, we have delivered so much for the American yeah. people. And we had a lot to talk about. We had a lot to sell. And I think, You know, I'd be interested in y'all's reflections. Of course, from my vantage point, I think Democrats were more united than ever in terms of a centralized message. We stayed very, 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 very focused. And our voters turned out. They stayed very, very, very focused. Now, of course, the work continues. We have a lot to keep moving forward on. Um, But there were some very, very bright spots. I mean, I think if you think of just we picked up a seat in the U.S. Senate. I mean, yeah. first and foremost, right? The governor's races that we won also, uh, you know, we have the governor's seat in Arizona. We also made history with Tina Kotek and Maura Healy, right? There was not just the number of races that were won. Um, but the people that were elected is just as important. And the great news is that we didn't just see this at the top of the ticket like you tend to in many races like this. We saw it in the number of state legislatures mm-hmm. uh, that flipped the super majorities that are now in place and that now exist in many, many important states, especially as we look toward the midterms, This is going to be really important. And so, um, you know, you have people like Maxwell Frost, who is now a member of Congress, right? The first Gen Z Uh, member of Congress. You have Greg Kazar from Austin, uh, who some of us have known for a very long time because of his work in the city council and his work Mm -hmm. at workers' defense before then. And so it is, yes, the sheer number of races that were won. That is awesome. That is great. I'm going to continue to celebrate that. But when you look a little bit closer as to who these people are that were elected, the agenda that they ran on, which was President Biden's agenda there's a lot, there's even more to celebrate, right? And so we just have to keep going. We have to keep delivering for the American people and we have to continue to make sure that they know um, what exactly we're doing and the differences between us and those on uh, the other side of the aisle. So talking about keeping going,
1: there's another election, presidential election cycle next year. And so I wanted to ask you about strategy. You have a little bit of experience. I'm being facetious there. You have a lot of experience. Prior to 2020 election, you were the state director for Hillary Clinton in 2016 in Nevada and Colorado, and you helped win those states for Hillary. So I wanted to ask you what those experiences were like there, and what were the major lessons you learned in Nevada and Colorado that you find are applicable to other states today across the country? And how does the strategy change from one state to another?
2: You know, I'm always so happy to talk about Nevada and Colorado because that, to me, and I'm very lucky to be in my dream job today. But at the time, those were my dream jobs, right? So I've been very, very lucky in the positions that I have held. Um, but those two were special for different reasons. You know, the thing about Nevada is Nevada is a state of underdogs. It is a state of immigrants. It is a state of uh, diversity with large African-American, AAPI, Latino, um, even Native American populations, right? Senior populations. It's really the type of state where it really lends itself to making sure that you're providing a platform that is reflective of the entire state. There's working class, as you all know. It's a hospitality economy, focused economy. It's a union, a very, very union-heavy state. And so it really lends itself to really having to work really, really hard, right? Not being able to take a cookie cutter approach. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was really proud of uh, working for Secretary Clinton for many reasons. One is that she is probably the reason I'm in politics today. You know, I have always admired her. And I was very, very lucky to count her as someone who is a friend and someone who has been like a mentor to me in some ways. I don't want to I don't want to overcommit her um, for my <laughs> actions. But what I loved about Nevada is at the time, you'll remember um, that Iowa and New Hampshire were first in the primary. And so most yeah. people who were entering presidential politics, those are the states that they wanted to go to, right? It was really, really hard to recruit for organizers and for the Nevada caucus. And so you know what? It really lended an opportunity to build out a diverse set of organizers, not unlike myself, People like Annalise Escobar, who came from San Antonio, Texas, Alana Mounts, who came from Oregon, you know, Natalie Montelongo from Brownsville, Jorge Neri from La Vita in Chicago. You know what I mean? It was a lot of people like us, immigrant kids, um, kids that maybe did not have a traditional path to getting involved in politics. And what we did is we developed maybe not the most you know, finesse or pristine or, you know, high caliber strategy, but it was a strategy that was based on the communities that we were representing and organizing for, whether it was East Las Vegas or the rurals of Nevada with so, where so many of the native communities are based, right? And because we were hiring people that were either from those communities or had shared identities or shared stories, I think it really gave us an upper hand in building out that caucus strategy, right? And so we were able to build, to do a lot of the heavy work. So by the time the attention was no longer on Iowa or New Hampshire, because those contests that were also very important had passed, one is nobody expected that Nevada would matter so much. Because if you'll remember, there was a lot of back and forth on who won the Iowa caucus. Was it Senator Sanders or was it Hillary Clinton? And Hillary Clinton had you know, edged it out. And then Senator Sanders won Mm. New Hampshire decisively. And so it really did come down to Nevada. Right. But because of the work that so many of these organizers had done, we were in a really strong position. We had built relationships with the local community leaders. We had built out organizing programs, whether it be with the high school students at Rancho High School at North Las Vegas, et cetera. And those organizers were out doing that critical work. We were ready. We were ready, and those relationships that had been developed with Secretary Clinton were going to hold really strong. That didn't matter, like who had momentum coming in or not. In Colorado, I would say it was very similar but separate. I, you know, Colorado felt it, it was a very different experience for a few reasons. One is when you get to the general election, it is really a hodgepodge team that comes together from other primary states. You know, you do not have, I think, the benefit that you do in some of the primaries where you're building it from day one, right? You have to, like, jump in. You have to jump in with the party. You have to jump in with the established coordinated pieces. And you you have to keep moving. But it was a really special campaign. We um, had uh, the mentorship of uh, Secretary Ken Salazar, who's now ambassador to Mexico. And we were talking about this earlier, Steve, but, you know, he was very involved in 2004, Mm -hmm. right when... Was there began to be a change in the investment of Colorado before Colorado? You know, before people put it in the quote solid blue category, which if you know good enough, nothing is ever quote solid blue. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he really helped us, amongst others, develop a program that was intended to serve as a wall, right? So at the time, if I'm remembering correctly, Colorado in 2008 and 2012 had been the tipping point to 270 for President Obama. But in 2016, if you'll remember, at this point, they had already made a lot more progress, and it was more, I would call it light blue. And so we built a program that, of course, you know, banked as many votes as possible in Denver, in the boulders of the world, in the Aspens of the world, but also really worked to hold the line in the Colorado Springs of the world. One of the things that I was worried about at the time, and I think we have now seen this, although now there's no need for it, is essentially the closet Trump voters. Because in our data, we were not seeing a lot of support for President Trump uh, in Colorado. But we were also seeing just some, you know, lack of enthusiasm amongst young voters. And so we really tried to lean into both and try to develop a program that was Was specific without, you know, essentially taking any voting block for granted. We built a really diverse team, I think it ended up being about two thirds diverse, certainly the senior staff was majority woman majority diverse. I, I thought in my opinion, then and in my opinion now, that was the best campaign team in politics. And I know I say this often, we got really lucky, but we did. And it ended up being a really difficult night, as we'll all remember in 2016. It was really difficult for this set of organizers because because our team, you know, was so diverse and the people that we were working with is we had people on election night who knew whose lives we knew were going to be severely impacted by our loss. And yet we had won and yet we had lost. And there was just a lot to process and a lot to work through. But one thing that I'm really proud of as it pertains to Colorado is that, and I, think, and I think I could say the same for a lot of people who worked in 2016, is that people didn't pack their bags and go home. They kept going. I mean, we had members of the Colorado team who ran for Congress, who ran for office. We have members of the Colorado team. I mean, I have two of them now that uh, work here at the White House on the team that I'm a part of. And so these are organizers that just kept going and didn't stop. And I think that that's one of the things that I think that that was one of the beneficiaries of 2020 and 2022 is that our volunteers, our organizers, our teams kept going. And I I think that they'll continue to do that. And I and I hope they will.
0: Yeah, I want to I want to lift up and both we'll salute you for, but also lift up for the audience the centrality of the focus on voter mobilization and turnout that you have had in all of your work. And, and I would say, sadly, that's still not a sufficiently understood or prioritized cornerstone of, of democratic and progressive politics. But you have always done the work, as you were just describing, to put together teams who do the voter contact work to maximize voter turnout. So I just want to commend you on that and then ask you similarly, and again, I really you know appreciate your comments at the opening, you know, of this pod, you know, about I, you know, how I have tried to move forward and, and, and bring people with me as I move into these different uh, arenas, but you have absolutely done that everywhere. I have encountered you over the time that I've known you, or even watched you, I guess what today, I guess was our, uh, the Facebook anniversary popped up from our first dinner from <laughs> several years ago, but that you've always had extraordinarily, uh, racially diverse and, uh, largely uh, women of color who you b- have surrounded yourself with, and you have been extremely successful and effective in all the arenas that you've been in. And sadly, that's not a given. It's not a given in the country. It's not a given in progressive politics. It's not a given in democratic politics. And it's frankly, it's not the norm truthfully. So can you talk a little bit about how you've gone about doing that? How have you I, found and identified the talent from these different communities and that to be able to assemble such diverse teams from that standpoint even your current team and your in your current job.
2: You know, I will say two things to start. One is I'm very lucky in my current position that President Biden has made this a priority across the administration. You know, we are the most diverse administration as it pertains not just to the cabinet, but also the White House. And so that has been incredible to see and to be a part of. And two, I think part of the reason that it's always been so important to me is for a few reasons. One is I have been the beneficiary of so many um, who have lifted me up and who have invested in me. Steve, as I mentioned, you have been one of those people. Hillary Clinton has been one of those people. President Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, Um, but also a lot of people behind the scenes whose names maybe your listeners wouldn't recognize who really took it upon themselves to invest in me and to lift me up and to believe in me when I didn't believe in myself. I mean, I, I talk a lot about this. I mean, not as much recently, but what well, people would say, well, did you always want to work in the White House? Did you always want to be political director? And the, the honest answer is no. And you want to know why? Because it never even crossed my mind. It was a dream that would have never, ever even crossed my mind. Why would this kid from Lafaria, Texas, be the White House political director ever? And it's not that I didn't think I could ever be capable. I mean, I I don't have, I promise you, I'm a very confident person, very healthy ego. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It just never crossed my mind. But you know what? It did cross the mind of others, like Julie Rodriguez and Jen O'Malley-Dillon and others. Mm -hmm. And so I have been the beneficiary of many other people's ideas and work and care to making sure that teams are reflective and that the voices of others are included, right? And I, I try to remember that day in and day out. And I will tell you, I mean, here's the thing about these teams that I've built many ways it is self-serving because in my opinion, these are the best people. I mean, they really are. I have had such an incredible opportunity working with them, learning from them. I got very lucky in Nevada and in Colorado in 2016 and that really springboarded in my career. But the people that were organizing, the people that were knocking on those doors, uh, the people that were writing and executing these plans, um, the people that were making incredible sacrifices to do these jobs, were them. Right, their work were the ones that really lifted me up. And I think when I hire, of course, of course, of course, I always want to hire diverse. I always want to look to hire as many women as possible. And my current team is nine out of ten women. Nine, you know, nine out of ten of them are women. Very diverse team, and I think it makes us so much stronger and so much better. But the proof of the matter is they're incredibly great at their jobs, right? I mean, I think of the Nevada and the Colorado teams. I was just making a little list. Natalie works at the White House in the political shop, so does Alana. Ernie is a press. Uh, Deputy press secretary for the vice president. Vanessa is a press secretary for the first lady. Han does public affairs for SBA. Kristen is, you know, a senior comms official at Treasury. You know what I mean? I can continue to make this list. And so that's where do you everyone...
0: find these people? I guess that's what people, well, where do we find that, That's Let what people. I won't that. name any names, but there were people who held very high level positions in the prior <laughs> administration who have said, who said to me specifically, we're looking, but we can't find people. So where do you find mm-hmm. them? So I can pass it on to those. People.
2: I mean, I think a lot of it is also word of mouth. I mean, here's the thing that a lot of times we don't talk about is that the systems that we use are outdated systems. And so, like, yeah, we're not going to find them. I'm going to exaggerate here. Like, we're not going to find them on Craigslist, right? We have to ask other people. We have to ask, like, do you know anybody who's interested in being an organizer? Do you know, and you know what I mean? Like, we can't just keep going. And I don't think that this is true um, in a lot of places. But if we're hiring organizers, you, know, you just can't go to the College Democrats. Right. I mean, by the way, there are a lot of great organizers who never went to college because I, they didn't have the interest I, or I opportunity. Believe it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I also have worked alongside people who have been excellent at this and who have worked, you know, in building diverse teams. Jorge is one of them. Natalie's another. Alana's another. And so I think we also all revert back to who we know and what we know. I used to joke in, in Colorado that uh, one of my proudest moments of Colorado was when I realized that, you know, I think, I don't know, a quarter, I don't, at this point I'm making it up, but a big chunk of the Colorado team was actually Texan. And that's because <laughs> we were going to places we knew, you know, people we knew for where we live, young people, older people who had done previous organizer organizing, do you know anyone? And I think we have to also like reimagine the pipeline, right? Like, paid canvasser today, why can't they be the field director of the campaign tomorrow, right? And really begin to to think through some of that. I will say, though, to be fair, is I do think across the board, there have been significant improvements in terms of diversity around the Democratic Party. And I think that, you know, we, of course, have a lot more work to do, but look at the cabinet, the vice president, look at Um, people who are running some of these like institutional organizations. I mean, you have Patrick Gaspar at a cap, you have Lafonza Butler at Emily's list. You have um, Mm -hmm. Jamie Harrison at the DNC, you know what I mean? And so we are making a lot of progress. We got a long way to go. And (laughs) I think we just also have to stay uh, committed to it and have to stay accountable to it. And I think here at the White House, you know, we're accountable to the president, and this is something that's a big priority for him.
1: Yeah, you're right. It, it's it's great to see, especially since their base is majority of people, colors about, you know, feels good. kind of like about time that it feels like the sea winds are changing, and the the people in leadership and different parts of the system are becoming more diverse each day. I, I'm really intrigued. You know, I'm I'm a mom. I know you are too. And as a parent of a young Person, I'm just so intrigued about how you ended up working in politics in the first place. Just to let um, listeners know, not only did you work on Hillary's campaign, but prior to that, you served as general election director in Nevada for Obama's re-election campaign in 2012. I also want to add how sort of tickled or thrilled I was to learn that you have a bachelor's in English. And English lit because that's what I wanted to major in college. But my that's what I, I didn't did <laughs> major in. And
0: I didn't know that about you, you Amy, actually. I did not. Know, well, I majored, but I didn't finish. but African I stuck with Afro studies, a with
2: studies, didn't you? I
0: started yeah. English and Afroam. Uh, I couldn't get through English and ended up with Afroam. But I didn't know you had an English uh, major. I mean, I didn't realize that.
2: Oh, I there are so many things. You all do not know about me. Anyway. <laughs> oh, I bet. And we
1: need to have drinks over that or something. But yes. I just want to say, you know, my uh, yeah, my immigrant mom's sensibility, not not unusual, but she was like, listen, what are you going to do with that? You know, you're not, um, you know, her thing was always um, their English, they meaning white people will always be better than ours, meaning us as Chinese Americans, uh, me as a child of immigrants, she said, you can't compete with them in their Area, you have to go study something that involves math, which I was actually terrible at. But uh, I ended up getting an accounting degree, uh, and you know, here I am, I'm a podcaster. But but <laughs> having said that, um, I feel like I wish I could go back and say, no, mom, I can actually end up working, you know, in the White House for the, you know, with the president. So I'm just curious about how you ended up in politics because I think many people, young people, parents of young people, people in general they think of people in your position as you must have had a degree in politics. You must have, you know, had this sort of route, gone to Stanford, you know, that there's only one way to do Stanford. (laughs) I need to suggest that. But this image, no, of course they're not. But this image of, unless you have this traditional route of art, whatever the public's perception is of who, what kind of background you have to end up in your position, for example. But you're, you didn't come from, your path is what doesn't look like that.
2: You know, there's a, I joke, there's a, I'm just about to make this joke for some of the UTSA to White House pipeline is not a big <laughs> one. Not like Stanford, <laughs> at least. Although, by the way, there are quite a few roadrunners. So with all due respect to you, I before I get a letter from them or something. Okay, so how did I end up in politics? I have always loved politics. As I mentioned before, I honestly do not even remember when I started loving Hillary Clinton. I don't remember what like started Mm. it or any of the sort. I have always loved her. I just, it's been something that I always cared about. Right. And so I went to school at UTSA. I got a degree in English and I I loved it a lot. And then I actually became a grant writer at the American Red cross. And I, This was in 2000. I graduated from college in 2006. And so I worked there from 2006 to 2007. So summer to summer, essentially. And at the start of the year in 2007, you all will remember that it was a really exciting time to be a Democrat, maybe at least as a spectator. Mm -hmm. You had John Edwards. You had Barack Obama. You had Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. You had a slew of others. I think you had Chris Dodd. You had, I mean, Tom Vilsack, Bill Richardson. I mean, I couldn't even remember the list of people. And a lot of people don't know this, but the American Red Cross does a lot with military families. Mm-hmm. And so the Fisher house opened up a center for the intrepid in San Antonio and Hillary Clinton and John McCain uh, were two of the keynote speakers. And so I got to meet as uh, at the time, Senator Clinton, and I was so excited and I called my brother. I mean, this was back in the day. Listen, <laughs> I remember taking a picture and then I remember going to Walgreens that afternoon to
1: <laughs> print the film. Oh and my then, gosh. Like,
2: yeah. I mean, and then like scan it so I could send it so that others could see it. You know, it was a whole thing. So stoked. Uh, this is just, you know, it was a different time. Anyway. This is my brother. Otherwise, (laughs) yeah, there was no Instagram. I you know what? Now I wouldn't even know where to find this picture. Actually, I know where my mom has a picture of it in her living room. Anyway, so I called my brother, Isaac, who has always been one of my biggest champions. I have three older brothers and he's the youngest of the three, but still very important for your listeners to know still older than me. And I called him and I was like, oh, my God, I met Hillary Clinton. And he's like, oh, that's awesome. So this is in January. And then in February, he said, you know, if you're interested, I met somebody. He was working in a law firm at the time. He was working at Perkins Coie. He said, I met somebody who used to work on campaigns. You should send me his resume because he knows people who work on campaigns. He might be able to like, see if you're interested in working on a campaign. And I'm like, well, what does that even mean? How do you work on a campaign? What is a job on a campaign? Like, I didn't know. Any, I mean, oh, wow. how would a normal person know? Truly. Yeah. He said, well, I don't yeah. know, but send me your resume. And this was like in February. <laughs> Fast forward to it's the weekend before Easter. And he calls me and he's like, you haven't sent me your resume. And I said, I know, I just, I'll work on it this weekend. He's like, send it to me right now. And I'm like, I, I don't, I mean, I don't even know what this job is. He's like, send it to me right now. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, he wouldn't um... let me off the hug because I was very like, what does this even mean? You know, I honestly, I was scared mm-hmm. long story mm-hmm. short. Um, this man sends my resume to Robbie Mook and Marlon Marshall,
1: Mm wow, who
2: -hmm. had just been hired to run uh, the Nevada caucus. And I remember at the time, I I mean, I had to learn about the primary process. I didn't even know about it. Mm -hmm. And so after I learned about it, I, I thought, well, New Hampshire looks really beautiful. I would love to go to New Hampshire. <laughs> and, um, you know, they took one look at my resume from the Rio Grande Valley, immigrant kid, native mm-hmm. Spanish speaker. They're like, somebody said to me, mm. You are never going to Iowa or New Hampshire. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, Nevada is, this is going to be the first cycle where it's going to be a big wow. deal whatever right you know again I was like okay and I ended up being the first field organizer hired for Hillary Clinton in Nevada oh my! and I God. was really lucky because even That's though I was incredible. so scared yes it was really incredible because I was so scared I had this incredible boss at the American Red Cross at the time. Her name uh, is Leslie Palmer. And I was talking to her about it. And she's from Rhode Island. I mean, she just had been exposed to a very different worldview than me, right? And I was very scared to leave my job Mm -hmm. that I did love. And she said to me, I'll make you a deal. If you go and you don't like it, I'll give you your job back. Wow! And that gave me just enough courage to get out there. And my mm-hmm. brother Isaac was so nervous that I was going to back out that he flew from Seattle to Lafaria, Texas, which is the southern, <laughs> basically the southernmost point in Texas. And he and my mom drove me all the way to Las Vegas. Oh my God. And this
1: is so, so amazing.
2: I just, no one gets through life alone. And yeah. all of those pieces came together um, to get me there. And I have now worked in Nevada many cycles. I've lived there three different times. Um, and hopefully one day there will be a fourth because I love Nevada and I owe so much to the people of Nevada because it was being an organizer. Really? It, it turned on a light bulb that I didn't know existed. There's this organizer. I'm going to show myself. I think it's, is it Fred Ross? Steve?
0: Yes. Yes. it is Fred. And
2: Ross. he used to say <laughs> that um, being an organizer is like being a, a social arsonist going around and lighting mm-hmm. people on fire right like setting them on fire like changing their life in a way that they could never have imagined and that is what organizing did to me wow. it just like woke me up mm-hmm. in a way that i didn't even know was possible yeah Sorry. no no I, I
1: i literally like i have like tears i have like tears in my eyes I, i'm so moved by your story and it is also just such like a beautiful what i think i'll feel of it, as an american story kind of mm-hmm. um the, the best part of from, you know, people like you in this country. So thank you for
0: sharing that. Well, and in terms of the, what's the the thing from uh, Hamilton? We're like, can we get back to politics now? (laughs) To tie it to politics in this regard, in addition to all of the great, you know, stuff you were saying, there's a common article of faith in the media now about, you know, Latinos um, trending conservative, and particularly Latinos from the Rio Grande Valley in Texas and South Texas. So, I mean, story is a real illustration of what's possible in terms of people becoming not just progressive, but becoming progressive leaders. So, I wanted to, to make that point. So, before we let you go, I mean, I wanted you, you know your your life has gone through a lot of you know changes over the past period of time, the period of time that we've known each other, and so you've become a parent two times over now, right? And so. And then you're in the working in the White House. So what's it like? And I think that would be of interest to a lot of people how you kind of balance that and how what's it like being a mom and how do you juggle all of that? Um, somebody working in the, working in the White House.
2: You know, um, being a mom is the absolute greatest thing in my life, and I never mm-hmm. for a second forget it. And I think that that gives me a lot of clarity um, in the work that I do and in the priorities that I set for myself and what I can or cannot do. There are a lot of really incredible um, people here. I have an incredible team, but my boys only have two moms. <laughs> I mean, it would have it would have worked a lot better if I said one mom, but truly they have two. <laughs> um, but they only have one me, and so I always really try to remember that. And again, you know, like I've said repeatedly, how how lucky and I feel, and how blessed I am. But it's true. I mean, again, I am surrounded by people that understand what it's like to have small kids mm-hmm. and a team uh, that goes far and above and beyond to make sure that I am where I need to be when I need to be it. And, and I'm very lucky uh, to have that benefit. However, I will say it is also very hard. Sometimes oh, I walk oh. through the halls here and I, I do reflect upon my time. And I cannot believe in two years I was pregnant. I had a baby and now that baby is one year old and here I am, uh, but get by with a lot of help. And I'm very lucky to be able to have that help for, to have a very supportive wife and other mom of my boys. My boys are very supportive. And I think the reason I'm able to do this is beyond that help is that I have a lot of clarity and that, that is my number one role. Um, And I'm lucky to be a part of a team that understands that and accepts it. And helps me fulfill that job. Here's to the village, right? We all need that. Oh village. my goodness, it's a, it's like a city center. <laughs>
0: like, right. It's so, so
2: yeah, yeah, so many people.
0: So, Charlene, when it gets tough, just think that Emmy has two children and she's the senior advisor to the president of the United States. So there is that.
1: Uh... I, I definitely that will make me feel so much better, Steve, when I'm like, Why
2: am I struggling. <laughs> and says, I don't even have a little kid. Says I
1: don't the non-parent. Have an, an eleven. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, she's 11
1: now, of- and it's a lot. It is a lot easier. Like to see the light at the end of the title. <laughs> she's a lot more self-sufficient, and well, when they're little, man, it's like it's no joke. It's hard.
2: What's hard? Oh. I mean, last night I I sent a message to my chief of staff. I said, "Hey, heads up, both of my boys have runny noses today, and so I oh, do not man, know man. what we're waking up to in the morning." You know, I, and if mm-hmm. if I would have had to, and I said, you know, of course, I really want to make the Steve thing happen, and so let's plan the day as as we have it, but Mm -hmm. push comes to shove. If they need me, if one of them would have woken up with a fever, you know, we would have figured it out.
0: Well, in so many ways, yeah, you are a, a model for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. So, and you are a, a right-hand person to the President of the United States, so we will let you get back to that job. And we thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. And then really just personally, thank you from the bottom of my heart for all you have done and how much care you've shown to me. It really, really means a lot.
2: Well, thank you. I hope you know um, how much I care about you, uh, how grateful I am for the two of you for this space to converse and to reflect. You know, a lot of times we know this, and this is like in our heart, and we... I don't want to say we bury it, but it's off to the side. And to me, I really enjoyed this conversation because it has really reminded me of how I got here and who got me here and why this work is so important. And so I thank you for that opportunity. It is not always easy to remember in the in the busyness and in the shuffle of the day-to-day. And so thank you.
0: All right. That's all the time we have for today. It was really great to connect with Emmy and have her share with us and with you uh, thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Emmy on Twitter at at Emmy Ruiz, E-M-M-Y-R-U-I-Z. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to the podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.